Are you ready? It's that time! Oh wait, this is me first. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's staying in the recording. Oh, I'm I'm glad it is. This is perfect. Um, my brain is kind of fried from all of the reading I've done the last few days. So that's no, it's for anyway. Welcome to Man Buns and Jesus. Uh, the two bickering voices you hear right now are me, Pastor Ben Orschlager of Lake Orion, Michigan and uh, Pastor Josh Laborious of somewhere in California, Edge, Edgewater Lutheran Church in East California, um, and recently promoted to dad. Yeah, sure. I think it's a promotion. I mean, I uh, guess. Anyway, uh, Josh, what are we talking about today? Uh, Despite Ben's uh, meanderings, um, what we're going to be talking about is something that is actually, it's pretty like precise. And uh, we're going to be talking about the LCMS National Convention, which for uh, those of you who are who listen to this and you're outside the LCMS, in fact, probably most of you who are listening to this and are inside the LCMS, um, you might not know what that is. And what it is, every three years, well, COVID, hey, I think. So while you're ex before you explain this, before you turn off this episode, because you're already bored to death by the fact that we're going to talk about, like, the idiosyncrasies and yeah, intricacies of our denomination, um, there are big topics being addressed at this convention that Kind of lean into, the, as lean into the broader themes of a lot of things that Christianity is facing in general. So even if you're outside the LCMS or you don't love the LCMS, um, these are things that are probably going to be relevant to you in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, a lot of these, in fact, could be considered hot button issues. Mm. Um, but anyway, so what the LCMS National Convention is every three years delegates from all over the country meet in one location and they talk about a bunch of things and they vote on a bunch of things and to varying degrees of utility <laughs> in that yeah the synodical convention can make a decision they cannot force congregations to abide by that decision because we are a congregational synod right so the synod can advise they can say we really think this is the best practice for something but things accepted in convention do not necessarily dictate practice um, in some cases they can um for example there's a a motion before the floor to end the practice of online communion which i think we've talked about in a previous podcast episode um i don't know if we actually have touched that one okay but um practically i think it's just advisory yeah but that's that's the way that it'll I... play out is that like if this passes this becomes official like doctrine of the synod and you can have theological charges brought against you if you don't stop doing it so yeah if if it is a doctrinal decision then you can get at very least your pastor can get in some sticky water for it but uh sticky water that is not a phrase that any hot water in a sticky, sticky situation. situation yeah um so we're not going to talk about everything because the boiling book is hundreds of pages long and I haven't read the whole thing because I'm not going to the convention anyway. Uh, I don't know if Ben's read the whole thing. Are you going to convention? 
Yeah, I volunteered as tribute for the Hunger Games. Ben's going. Um, to be clear, I would have been willing to go, but um, I have a layperson from my congregation going, and you can't have the pastor and the lay representative from the same congregation. So, yeah, I had the. Uh, would you like to talk about today, Benjamin? Well, I'll start this off by by kind of giving the broad brush of, like I said, all of this stuff is kind of getting into the minutia of how does the church interact with the world? Um, and from my perspective, this is my reading of the resolution so far, and I haven't gotten through all of them. I've gotten through like synopses that have been given to me of all of them. Um, but I'm about 70% of the way through all of the actual resolutions. And I'm about ready to tear my eyes out the next time I see the phrase, whereas, um, or be it resolved. Be it resolved. Though for anyone who's never read like Robert's rules kind of documents, those are like headings for these documents, essentially. Yeah. You have the whereas, 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 whereas gives a bunch of reasons for whatever. And then it says, be it resolved. And that's like the action step. Yeah. So your whereas is are the statements that lead you to your conclusion. And then your be it resolved are your conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the, the biggest topics of conversation that I see coming up in this particular convention are around at least as far as I can tell three things first the role of our pastors um, we as a denomination like most other denominations in the United States face a pastor shortage um, the LCMS has a really high bar for the education of its pastors and um, I think we're in the like top 2% of education level received prior to becoming a pastor. Um, I don't remember what's ahead of us. I know Catholics are, but I can't I remember think, beyond that. I think the Catholic church might actually be it. It's, it's not a lot. Yeah. Um, but uh, because of that, probably partially at least, uh, and because of a number of other cultural and societal factors, we are likely to go from uh, around 6,000 rostered clergy uh, active as of today to probably around 3,000 by 2050. So we're gonna lose half of our active pastors in the next 25 years. Um, unless we're able to reverse some of those trends, which might be tough. Um, and so one of the big questions is how do we open up potential avenues for more guys to enter ministry that have less hurdles? If there are ways to do that effectively, if there are ways to do that effectively, um, and, or how do we just do a better job of creating a pipeline? that gets guys from our churches into our seminaries and the, the programs that already exist. Um, so that's one. We'll get to that. We'll circle back to that. I know you've got stuff that you want to say. Um, a soapbox on that one, man. Oh, I believe it. Um, two is our Concordia system. Um, the Concordia system is the schools that are associated with our synod. Colleges. Specifically, our colleges, colleges and universities. Um, and there's been a chunk taken out of them in the last decade. While Josh and I were at the seminary, uh, Concordia uh, Selma and Concordia Portland closed. And then I believe shortly after we graduated, Concordia Bronxville closed. Yeah. I might be wrong with my timing on that, but. I thought Bronxville actually closed before Portland did. I could be wrong. 
I think Portland was before Bronxville, but I think it was in pretty short order. Um, Cause I'm pretty sure Portland closed while we were working with Andy in the IT office. I think I asked, no, it was over Vicarage. Cause I definitely asked him about it. Um, in any case. Anyway. Um, and one of them, one of the Concordias is leave in a certain sense is leaving, how do we say this? Is leaving the synodical governance structure prescribed for it? Is that a, is that a fair and unbiased way of saying that? I'll just leave it at this. The, one of our Concordias, I shouldn't say our, one of the Concordia system schools is in conflict with synodical leadership. And the exact nature of how that's all going to conclude is still kind of up in the air. Um, but some of that's attempting to be addressed here. Um, there are also concerns across the denomination about how Lutheran our institutions are, which I'll, I can get into some of the history on that um, when we get to that in a little bit. Um, and there's also some concerns about what's being taught at some of them. Um, so again, more like, is the church becoming too worldly through its institutions? And could that have an impact on the future of the church? Or is the church simply trying to um, learn what it can about the world that God has created from what the rest of the world is picking up and, and then trying to filter it through the theological framework that we have? That's one of the big discussions. Like, where does where do our, our schools shake out on that? Uh, and then the last is how do we address the socio-political climate that we're in? Um, Michigan, where I'm a pastor, in the last election cycle, um, had one of its most liberal votes um, in a long time. Um, and this is a pretty staunchly Democrat-leaning state for a long time because of its union ties. Um, but it really hinged on a lot of social issues in the last election, uh, especially stuff around life and um, family issues and Christian education and yada, yada, yada. Um, so the Michigan district has been working on some of that stuff already. And some of those concerns are the we as a district addressed last year in our convention are also being forwarded to the national convention, both by us and other states, um, just as like, a, all right, we got to start working on how we address these things better because otherwise like, we like the accusation of us being in the stone age is just going to be way too true. Um, so I think from my perspective, those are the big ones. Um, there are other things that are being looked at. Yeah, um, there are other like individual issues that I think they're going to be contentious, but I think they're less of a, I don't know, they're probably a smaller scale in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of church bodies that we're going to move into alternate public fellowship with at this convention. Which is kind of cool, um, especially. Is one we're moving out of Altern Pulpit Fellowship with? Yeah, um, but we're. I think there's one in Uganda, one in Sudan for sure, and one in Ukraine for sure. And I think the third one's in Uganda uh, that we're moving into Altern Pulpit Fellowship with, as long as the convention approves it which I don't think there would be a reason to say no. Um, so like there are some other cool and interesting things happening, but those are the big contentious issues. Josh, where do you want to start with those three? Ooh. You want to get up on your soapbox? I want to get up on my soapbox. So okay. the issue stated is a fair one, the pasture shortage, and I've heard prominent voices who say we need to make it easier to become a pastor to fix this pastor shortage mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I disagree strongly mm -hmm. in that um, I'm trying to decide what order I want to go through this. Uh, I think I want to start. I think that's part of the reason we're in the trouble we're in right now. Okay. Because a couple generations ago, or I, I generate, I don't know, in the in the past, uh, there there was a time where seminary was paid for in full, and uh, there were people who entered the ministry to avoid the draft. I think what you got from that, from those two things, and probably some other things, is you got a bunch of pastors who, frankly, were not good at their job. They were not in the business of making disciples. They were not spiritually forming people, including themselves. And what that led to is people who they had a body in, their, in the pastor's office. They did not have a man who was spiritually worth looking up to. And if you ask people, if you ask young men, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you see a guy that you don't look up to, that isn't a sterling example of anything, who is their pastor, they're not going to say, yeah, I want to be like that guy. Especially when you have all these other things that come into it where pastors you're not going to get rich being a pastor, right? It's, it's, it is a very hard job to do. And if you don't like, and if you don't have an example of, I want to be like that person, there's very little draw to it. And when people say we need to make it easier, no, I think if, if you, you want a sustainable solution, and I put this on every survey they send my way of how do we recruit more people to the seminary? If you want a sustainable solution to pastors, put out pastors that young men look at them and say, I want to be like that guy. You put out pastors who are worth looking up to, and you'll generate more pastors who are worth looking up to. Okay. Now, that's not to say I'm against removing hurdles to get into ministry, right? Because I am also a staunch advocate for if your only reason for doing something is because we've always done it that way, that is not a good enough reason to keep doing something a, a particular way, okay? Um, but the reason I say this is because the big argument is we need a distance option for regular seminary. Because we have, and we talked about this in a previous podcast, there are distance options, but they're limited to certain segments of the population. If you just want to be a regular old pastor, there's not a distance option for you. And they say, well, there are guys who don't want to move to St. Louis and they don't want to do, you know, that the online option is just easier. And that would solve our problem. I say no. Because what you're communicating, the subtext of what you're communicating there is this is going to cater to you like if, if you're not willing to move for school and that's too much of a hardship well like how do you propose you're going to deal with pastoral ministry itself like so in that vein just because we need to make it easier i don't think that's going to actually solve our problem at best that's a band-aid that's going to make your numbers look better for a little bit but Long term, that's not going to solve your problem. What you need to do is manufacture excellent pastors. And I am not convinced, and this is why I say it, I'm not convinced you can do that virtually now. Because the character formation that you need, I think, cannot be done virtually. I, I have, and people have tried, I cannot be convinced at, at this moment, it can be done virtually for young guys. Um, and we talked about the exceptions to that in our previous podcast, but before I, because I know you want to say stuff, Ben, before I kick it back to you, I, I want to use a, a case in point. Um, when I was in undergrad, I arrived on campus early before everyone else, and I did a program called Media Immersion. 
and this was for people who were interested in student media in you know the newspaper the radio station stuff like that you could come a week early and kind of learn the ropes a little bit um while i did that program i got really interested in vandy radio specifically which is one of the campus's two radio stations it was the first year vandy radio was a radio station it was their first year in operation as a result there were some gaps in leadership and i after my entire week of training was put in the training director role and i didn't know what i was doing i was just like they said oh you're you want to be an education major you can do this okay um i kind of just did what i was told which included making the training program stupid easy like you showed up to two radio sessions and passed a five question no duh quiz and you were a host we added 12 hosts that year i think we had a ton of people sign up 12 people finished even that little easy easy training and they were bad like getting flagged by the fcc bad right they, they couldn't do the job. The next year, I knew what was going on a little bit more and I kind of put my foot down. I said, no, you're gonna go through a semester of training. You're gonna shadow someone all semester. There's gonna be these things you have to study and you're gonna to have to pass a couple tests so we know you know what you're doing. All told, you, you went from putting two hours of work in to probably 20 hours of work in over the course of a semester. We had, I think, 70 people sign up for training that semester, 50 of them finished. That's a big jump from 12. And what's more, that year, uh, on a national level, we won probably half a dozen awards for our radio station. And my case in point is, don't lower the bar to try and pump your numbers up. Keep the bar where it needs to be and let your excellence be what draws people in. Um, and I think that applies very well to seminary education because I think if if our main goal is we want to make it as easy as possible for people to become pastors, you're going to end up putting pastors that young men aren't going to look up to. There's my soapbox. I'll hop off of it. Okay. So then I'm going to not necessarily directly counter, but speak to a different set of circumstances. Ish. Ish. Someone so, had squirrels in your pants. And for anyone who gets that reference, let me know. <laughs> Continue. Um, first things first, I, I agree with you that, like, the easiest way to encourage more young guys to want to become pastors or more guys in general is to have good pastors. It's not the easiest, but it's the best. The easiest way to make that position, like, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, attractive? Yes. Yes. Is to have good pastors. Um, Unless not you that... start paying pastors really well. You could try that. It works for the, the doctor-lawyer professions. Yeah. Um, it's not going to happen, Josh. Sorry. Oh. And that's also not to say that josh or i are attractive um but i've heard a couple of things that that gave me pause and made me think first and i think this will make you happy there is at least one if not multiple resolutions in this year's convention about um enforcing the regulations around a supervising pastor for smp pastors so we have this program in this denomination already where we can train guys online they're supposed to be under a supervising pastor during their education and then also afterwards and through all of that, they're supposed to also have a like growth plan that their supervising pastor 
modern with them on. Yeah. If you could kind of jumping the gun on your point here, if you could prove to me that that was effective at forming guys' character, I would be very open to saying, okay, let's look at virtual options. However, it has been my experience that all that does is good guys continue to grow and guys who are spiritually phoning it in continue to spiritually phone it in. And I think it's very hard to, as you say, and I, I haven't read the resolutions. I don't know how they propose on enforcing that. I think the guy can lose his call. Yeah, but how do you measure it? How do you say, oh, yeah, this is actually because and here's my here's my thing. If you're doing it virtually, it's by nature curated. So people are going to see what you want them to see, which means you can control the perspective of growth. Whereas if you are on campus at the seminary, guys are going to see who you are. Sure. And because of that group identity that you are being sucked into, they are going to form you. Some guys sure. more than others, right? Yeah, you can still choose to sit in your room and go to class and that's it. It is much more difficult to make it through four years of seminary without being impacted in your character. Mm -hmm. um, Sorry, I interrupted you. So I think the one thing that maybe speaks to the effectiveness of this, hopefully, um, the guys that are being recommended for this, for that role of supervising pastor, have to be local to the guy that they are supervising. Uh, and it's not just like they get together and they have like a half hour conversation and they're good. Like, I think there's some sort of process that's being implemented yeah. which so, I think is a step in the right direction because I agree. You have to you have to have that community formation so if, if they were to say like circuit meetings become mandatory and you have to meet with your pastor on a regular basis like those kind of steps I think are in the direction that a, a virtual program would have to go yeah I think a lot of that is kind of being baked into that I don't know if they're making them 100% mandatory, but I think they're basically saying you need to go unless you have a good excuse for not being there. Um, like you've got a member that you need to visit in the hospital, right? Um, so I think that's good. There, There's some steps being taken there. The other thing that made me think, and this, I just don't know how we would necessarily implement this, look at the New Testament model of how they formed overseers and churches. Paul went to a place, met with the people there for a while, figured out who were the good leaders there, began working with them as like basically their seminary prof, and then put them in place in their community. I would I would put more stock in the relationship with, than that. I would almost say what a good vicarage mentor would look like. Because Paul lived life with these people. Oh, yeah. And if you look at his letters, he developed relationships with these people. And I think that's if, if you're going to develop a virtual system that works, that kind of stuff has to be at the core of it. Yeah, I agree. You have it, to know these really, you have to know these people in and out so that like you can vouch for their character. But systematically, I, I think that's very difficult to do. I think I to some extent I agree with you there. I think this is maybe a bit of a stretch. Um I think that if a candidate wants to be considered for a distance learning program the supervising pastor has to know them well enough that if that person were to be accused of robbery because that somebody that looked like them was caught on surveillance fo uh, footage in the nearby area that they would be willing to stand up and say i know that's not my guy i know that's not his character 
Yeah. Well, I think the other difficulty with that is you would really have to narrow down. And I love my brothers in the ministry. <laughs> I'm sure they're all blessing the, the congregations <laughs> that they're at. But you would have to be really selective on the guys that were supervisors. Yeah. Because the reality is, I know I know pastors who do not have relationships with people in their congregations. They sit in their office, they study, and they preach. And then when they teach Bible class, it's a lecture. Like they don't, they don't have that mentoring, that relational connection. Which means you would have, there are guys who would apply that you would have to say, no, you can't because mm -hmm. your pastor is not suitable for this. And that's where I think you start to get, well, it's hard to do systematically because there are a lot of guys you're going to have to say no to, not based on them, but based on the guy that's over them. I think, and this is going to be, <laughs> you might find this funny. I think we need a Chick-fil-A approach to supervising pastors. Really high standards, high training for the supervisor so that they produce pastors with high standards. Yes. And a high sense of training. You, you need guys who every person in their congregation would say, this is the best pastor I've ever had. If not the best pastor, like this pastor gets an A. Yeah. Like you might've had multiple A plus pastors at your congregation. Right. If you've been blessed in that way, I, that's fair. But like, if you can but if say. half your congregation isn't so sold on you. Yeah. That's fair. I mean, you only see them for a couple hours a week, most of them. Yeah. So, like, it's it shouldn't be that hard to keep them happy. Yeah. Yeah. Don't give me flack for that, people who are listening. I, I recognize that a lot of people get upset over stupid stuff. But anyway. So that's uh, that's the that's the seminary discussion, the pastoral formation discussion. And I think it's fair to say that if you want more of that, go back uh, somewhere in season three. Um, I think it's a side quest. There's an episode on pastoral formation. Listen to that. You'll get our full undiluted opinions on a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Hi, Juno. For anyone yep. who's just listening, Juno is Ben's dog. Here's her face. Um, and then the other issue that you brought up was, I think, related-ish. And it's the Concordia system. And this, yeah. is, this is a unique conversation we're having now because uh, <laughs> neither of us graduated from the Concordia University system. Yeah. Which is weird. Like, it's... <laughs> Maybe it's not so weird that we flock together, but we did both go to schools that start with a V. Yeah. So there's that. And both had Bryce Drew as their men's basketball coach for a while. This is true. Uh, he was less of a disappointment for you guys. Um, <laughs> he oh, his best recruits for you got hurt. Um, um, Zion anyway. Wilson. Hmm? I think was, anyway, not important. Uh, so... I am, uh, as of August 22nd, I will be teaching adjunct at a Concordia. But here's, here is my, here is my pie in the sky. If you were to give me keys of ultimate power, how would I deal with the Concordia system? Uh -oh. I would loosen it greatly from Synod. I would say, I would work with the Concordies and say, we're going to set theological and we're going to set ground rules. Here are the, here, are, here are kind of the moral ethic rules that we abide by as universities, because I think one of the, one of the important roles that the Concordia universities serve is there are schools that parents can send their kids to and be confident that their faith is going to be supported there. 
So I think it's it, it would be fair to say the campus has to have a pastor, has to have a faithful Lutheran and LCMS pastor. I think that's a fair a fair statement. Um, you say you have to have certain ethical rules like um, campuses that have under 21 students should be dry. And maybe you have separate housing for upperclassmen. I'm not opposed to that. Because um, alcohol is not a sin, debauchery is. And you have some of these, you have a code of conduct for students that adheres to the Christian code of ethics. So you set these ground rules and you say, as long as you abide by these, Concordia. Because then you have these schools who are free to become excellent universities who parents can still say, if my kid goes there, their faith is going to be in a safe place. And then you say, well, don't you need to be pretty theologically stringent if you're training church workers? Enter the pie in the sky part of this idea. Because I think a lot of average people and definitely a lot of Concordia people would say, oh, that seems really reasonable. Here's the crazy part. Form, and I would say add this into the seminary because the seminary has the space to do it. Form a church workers college. And that is all that they do. They train church workers. So if you, so say you want to be a director of music or a DCE or a pastor, you do it at the one school or two schools. You can do, you can do them at Fort Wayne and, and St. Louis. And I, the only reason I say that is because I know those schools have the space to do programs like this, like the physical space, and they're already paid for. So don't, don't go out and build this new thing. You just bring the, the staff on board to do this training. And here's the reason I, I'm sold on this as being a good idea is because then you have all your church, all your called church staff learning in the same place, which increases the quality of their education and it increases the potential, like they're, they're kind of, uh, they're leaning toward teamwork when they leave, because it's like, oh yeah, I went to school with DCEs. I'm familiar with like, I'm, you know, we can work together. Um, and I think where this really becomes cool is that pastoral education class you have to take. Why not have education professors from the Lutheran education part of the school teach those courses? Or when you have a worship class, get a director of music uh, ed, uh, professor to teach it. So you kind of cross train between departments and you just have this one school for training church workers. And then you can say, well, where are we going to be super hyper-focused and really concerned with the theological grounding of the school? That school, that school, yeah, you're probably going to be under a microscope, synodically speaking. Um, do I think this will ever happen? No. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think you could pull it off. Um, do I think it would it would do a lot of good for our synod if we would approach church worker education like that? I do, and I think what what you could do to maybe make it more palatable is you say. For a lot of these programs, two years at the church worker college, and you can do your your prereqs at a Concordia or really anywhere else, and and so you do kind of have a well-rounded education, and then you come for your last two years at the church worker college. Um, that's all I have to say on that. It's my crazy idea that no one's ever going to ask me for, and even fewer people would implement. But uh, that's what I got for you, Ben. Yeah, I have two, two thoughts on your crazy idea, and then I'm going to get into what they're actually talking about at the convention. Um, so one of the two things that I want to say is I think it's a terrible idea because, yes, you'd be concentrating your church workers, but you'd also be making them way less well-rounded. I, I pose to you the counterpoint of all of our classmates that went through pre-SEM programs and how well adjusted they were. Love you guys, by the way. But um, that's fair. Maybe say you have to do your first two years at a non-Concordia school. I, I think even just saying like you could you could do a year of pre-seminary theological training at the seminaries for any guys not coming from a Concordia or pre-seminary training of some kind, 
like to kind of get you up to speed if you want but like i don't think it's a good idea to focus that group of people in that way because pastors need to know the world that they're going to be preaching to and if you just kind of shelter in a sem uh, in one of the seminaries and program like that i think it's gonna well, my primary focus there is not on the pastors Oh, I get that. It's on it's on getting them to work with the DCEs and the, the church musicians and the uh which if you say you Christian have to do counselors your, your and precursor program outside the system, you're gonna get plenty of exposure. It might break some guys, but sure. Um there's some I I'll concede that's a fair point. I think you could work work it so it would be okay but i i'll concede that's a fair point and then second i think what you've argued for is maybe even a better reason to move the seminaries onto one of the campuses of the already existing concordias or maybe an adjacent campus maybe so like or alternatively open open new concordias in fort wayne and st louis to create those atmospheres there yeah or i mean alternatively well yeah and it wouldn't it wouldn't achieve the fullness of what I'm after with my idea, but what, you could do something where like the worship class is virtually taught by a professor from a Concordia. Yeah, but I do think the classroom community of having future pastors and future DCEs and future directors of parish music, I think, yeah. and, and future Lutheran educators, I think having them all in the same classroom, I think that could be valuable. I mean, you have that at the concordias that's another fair point well i guess so, i don't know how much they overlap they they do a fair bit um especially on on some of the like christian education classes and theology classes so um could you create a better focus group or concentration for those people so that they spend more time together sure I think you can do that at the Concordia without opening another program. That may be fair. So now that I've completely kiboshed your idea. Um, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I think you've raised interesting points. <laughs> now that I've kiboshed your idea, um, the things that the Synod is actually addressing here, as we kind of referred to this earlier, Concordia, Texas, one of the Concordia University System schools um, for the last three years, basically, has been in conversations with the Concordia University System, which is a board of um, people at the synodical level that have oversight over the Concordia schools. Um, through those conversations, They've been trying to get answers about what happened at, at Portland and Selma and Bronxville that led to their closures. Because um, part of the concern in, I believe, is that Sin is just going to come in and, and shut things down. Yeah, their perception, their perception in Austin was that it was a top-down decision. The local board of our board of regents didn't really have much of a say in those closures, which I think is a relatively fair read of the situation. Um, but as the system is currently set up, if the Concordia University System Board of Directors deems that a school is not worth what it's in being invested into, or what's being invested into it, like they have that right. Um, Portland's Board of Directors also got them into a terrible contract with an online uh, education system um for a master's of education program that fell apart in terrible ways um 
Concordia Selma has been criminally underfunded for decades. Um, and Concordia Bronxville had its own monetary issues as well as uh, some questions around how faithful they were to the LCMS. So um, I think there were some legitimate reasons for things happening at those Concordias, but whatever did happen was not communicated perhaps as well as it could have been. Um, and it, to a lot of the, our denomination felt sudden and abrupt and, and so the big conversation around the Concordias of the, the convention this year is how do we organize them going forward so that we can prevent future closures, we can prevent future scandal, we can prevent future um, mismanagement, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a uh, friend of the show, John Carolus, I think put it pretty well when he said, their, their summary was, or their conclusion was, we need to do this, but we haven't really had the time to make sweeping changes. And then they offer sweeping changes. So, there's a lot of hesitation about around what's been proposed just because it hasn't really had the chance to make the rounds yet and for people to figure out like what's actually going on. And um, my district president even said in some of his comments, there's probably going to be another iteration of this uh, motion before it even hits the floor next week. Um, so whatever I have that I got two weeks ago, probably won't even be the motion we end up voting on. Um, and there's just enough confusion around it that it's like, it's probably not the solution we need. Um, and the big well, thing that they're that... advocating for is more oversight, more connection on a national level. Um, and a, I think the one kind of good thing that they're trying to get out of it is setting forward a system of standards for the schools to follow. Yeah. And I think I think the core the inciting issue with Texas I think needs to be reconciled in a more faithful way than it's currently being. Yeah. Uh, I think they need to read first Corinthians and and respond more appropriately yeah i that's that's the response that i've seen in a lot of places and the president of the texas district um, put out some comments from a conversation he has had with both parties recently um and he, it got sent out to delegates at least in my in my district and uh his kind of conclusion was um, these wounds are too open, too fresh for us to really make any summary judgments on things now. But whatever conversations have happened over the last few months have not been done in a faithful and, and uh, eighth commandment upholding way. Um, they're not putting the best construction on things. They're not treating the other party as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and so if we want good faithful resolution on this, it's gonna take more time than the week that we've got before this is gonna get voted on. Yeah. So anyway, um, a lot of this boils down to like, Austin, Texas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Chicago, Illinois, Southern California, um, even Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan, are all very secular places. Um, I think the only ones that I skipped there were- Seward. 
Yeah, Seward, Nebraska, and Mequon, Wisconsin. Um, Mequon's pretty close to Milwaukee, so you could make a counter argument there, but it's also Wisconsin. Um, anyway, um, with those schools being in the locations that they are, I think the concerns that have been raised by some of the schools about how they approach social issues. Um, Concordia St. Paul listed the, the killing of George Floyd in its, um, in its report to convention as one of the major challenges it has had to wrestle with in the last four years since the last convention. Um, and I mean, if Concordia Portland and Concordia Bronxville were still around, they would just amplify some of that um, societal and cultural pressure that these schools are facing. Um, and so one of the big concerns around the Concordias and their governance has been, do we have the flexibility to respond to these things at a local level effectively? And where is our support coming from? Because to some extent, those schools have felt like they're hamstrung in the ways that they can respond to things. You invite a speaker to, to come to your campus and, and speak on the issues of racism and somebody in a part of the country where that's much less of an issue uh, catches wind of that and thinks you're just leaning into wokeness, quote unquote, like the school ends up getting in trouble rather than there being grace to say, hey, this is a challenge that they're facing in their urban cultural context. Um, so that's, that's where the schools are at. And then on the flip side, the synod's at, well, we've had a number of theological controversies at our Concordia system schools. We've, um, I think it was the president of Concordia Chicago got dismissed in like 2002, 2003, somewhere in there uh, for basically teaching ELCA doctrine uh, at the, at a Concordia. Um, a former professor of Concordia Portland got derostered. Uh, I think while I was at Valpo, he was teaching at Valpo at the time, and he got derostered um, for some of the things he was teaching at Concordia Portland. Um, like it's not to say that there haven't been problems. So the Synod wants to make sure that the, the teaching that's going on at the Concordias is faithful. And I think that's fair. This is an opportunity for us as a Synod to put our best foot forward and say, you know, here's what we believe. Here are some of our better thinkers teaching you this stuff. Um, let's have conversation. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. So that's, that's the situation as it stands, at least as in my reading. Um, it seems like I, there were a couple of resolutions that are like, we need to better support our Concordias in summary. And I think those are, well worth endorsing um, because we do like our congregations and 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 pastors and, and others have like kind of taken a back seat to like the infrastructure that has formed many of them um, and so maybe we should step up and and encourage people to support some of these institutions yeah i would say I don't know that the convention is the best 
place to solve issues like this. I think I, I agree, but it needs to get passed. Something needs to get passed by convention. Right. What I'm saying, it's very much the idea too many chefs in the kitchen. Yeah. I think what, and this is another instance where nobody's going to listen to me and no one's going to ask me. I think what Synod would be best off doing in convention is authorizing a certain, like a task force essentially to solve the problem. That's what they've done at the last three conventions. And none of them have put forward anything until now. And this one is still a work in progress. Well, you need to pick a better task force then. No offense to any of our brothers and that, our sisters on the task force. That there, there was a report from the 2019 convention task force that basically said just that, like, we got picked because they needed to pick a better task force. <laughs> and like, I think part of the reality is we are asking people who are filling other roles to step into this. And I think what this really needs to be is someone's full-time gig, maybe a couple of someone's full-time gig. Yeah, pay a couple people full-time for a few years to figure this out. Yeah, and and come back to us with something that's more well, uh, like more fully constructed, more well thought out, more well conversed with the different Concordia system schools, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that when it does hit the convention floor, it's fleshed out and not still getting edits up until the last minute. So in other words, like to speak to the broader situation that this is in, um, a lot of religiously affiliated schools have gone one of two ways in the last 40, 50 years. Um, either they've gone off the wall, like, They've forsaken any connection to their original faith. Yeah, they've either forsaken or they've become radicalized almost. Yeah, like Minneapolis has a few mosques that uh, are noted for um, the fact that many of their young men went to fight in the Somali Civil War or become members of ISIS. Um, and, you know, maybe a little bit more than a coincidence. Um, and we see radicaliz radicalization happening like that in other religions. And there are institutions within the Christian faith that are doing that too. Um, it looks a little different in the Christian faith, but still can happen. Um, and so we want our institutions to help provide a good education where like Josh said, if a kid goes there, the parents know that the faith is gonna be supported. Um, and we want them and, to be faithful. And that the kid can know that they're choosing a school that their faith is going to be supported. Yeah. Like, I can speak to, Vanderbilt was not a place where faith was encouraged or supported. <laughs> and it was a hard four years. Mm -hmm. Like, spiritually speaking, it was a difficult place to be for four years. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the last one, just briefly, there's going to be some discussion around some of the sociopolitical environment that we find ourselves in as a church and as a world. Wait, I got um, something for this. Sure. Be faithful and listen to episode one of season one. Sure. Yep. That's it. That's a big, that's a big part of it. Um, and I think a lot of this is around kind of the fallout from the large catechism debacle. Um, Which we covered in three episodes, four episodes? At least three. I think we did three and then later we came back and did a fourth. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I think to, above and beyond Josh's summary of be faithful and don't be a jerk, um, which episode one one is, recently been remastered thanks to the hard work of my uh, very attractive co-host. Um, Disgusting. <laughs> I had to work it back in at some point. Um, the most 
offensive thing you said today, Ben. You're welcome. Um, above and beyond those things, I think there's also just a measure of we need to recognize that the the ideologies and theories and movements we see in the world today are often a try often trying to address real problems and i think as a denomination we need to be willing to look at them and go okay what is their diagnosis ignoring their prescription what is their diagnosis because i think a lot of times they're right there is a problem and it has been accurately diagnosed. And then the solution that those movements propose is virulently anti-Christian. Um, if not just, you know, kind of your run of the mill anti-Christian. Um, and so we need to be able to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, understand there are some actual diagnoses being made by people with very secular agendas in the world. And we need to learn how to have conversations to where we can provide faithful solutions that are grounded in our, our ethics, AKA 10 commandments, um, and speak to what we believe about our God in the world we live in. Will not just casting aspersions on our neighbors. Yeah. So, um, we ready for takeaways? Sure. Time for takeaways. Yeah. Um, I think my takeaway would just be pray for everybody who's going to convention. Thank you. And especially Ben, he needs extra Jesus. <laughs> just pray that they would be wise and faithful in how they cast their votes. Yeah, much appreciated. Um, and I think my, my takeaway, and this is not necessarily something we could uh, directly address, but I think is kind of a theme of all of this, get invested. Get invested in what your church is doing, get invested in what your denomination is doing. Um, not just financially. No, yeah. Invest your time and your efforts into understanding what's going on in this world. Um, what's going on in your church body. Um, because I think it's it's so easy for us, like Josh talked about with those pastors that became pastors to dodge the draft. Like, it's easy for us to just sit in our office and not do anything to engage the world. Um, or sit in our churches, sit in our pews, and not do anything to engage the world. Um, so think about how you can engage your church and engage the world, so that some of these salute or some of these problems might, you know, kind of solve themselves. We create more Christians. We're going to find more people who can be uh, capable leaders in our churches. There goes your pastor shortage. If we can create more Christians, we can better uh, support our, our schools um, because there will be more kids that want to pursue an education there. If we create more Christians, we can get a better, uh, a louder and, and more faithful voice in, in the mainstream. Um, and we have more intellectuals to choose from that might even be able to say some of these things well, rather than the two schmucks you're listening to on this podcast. Um, Attractive schmucks. <laughs> you keep saying stuff like that, Ben. I'm I'm getting worried that you're going blind. Ah, <laughs> uh, I don't even need readers. Um, are you sure? When's the last time you actually tried to read a book? Counting the convention documents, because that's a 500-page manual. No. <laughs> Because that's all I've been reading for the last week and a half. Um, so there you go. Yeah, well, in any case, uh, buy our merch 
at edgewaterlutheran.org slash gear. But more importantly, like and subscribe to the podcast. It does, it makes us feel good about ourselves. Yeah. Um, let us know if you, well, hey, if you see us in church, uh, you won't see me. Well, actually, you will see me this upcoming Sunday if you're listening to this, because I'll be back. Um, if you see me and you listen to this episode, let us know. Uh, or if you see Josh and you listen to this episode, let us know. Uh, let us know what you thought, if this is the kind of thing that you want to hear more of. Um, or you can drop a comment on our Facebook page. Um, we do check it occasionally. Yeah. Um, let us know if you have topics you want us to discuss. Let us know if you want to come on the show. We'd be happy yep. to have you. That we would. That we would. With that, I believe we are done. So, brothers yep. and sisters, go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs>